0: Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. In last month's Pennsylvania primary, Republican Donald Trump won 56 percent of the Republican vote. Trump surprised many of the pundits by taking all 67 counties in Pennsylvania. How well will the presumptive nominee do in the general election in November? Trump faces a high hurdle in a state where registered Democrats outnumber Republicans by over one million. However, the populist Trump is trending upwards with working class Democrats in northeastern Pennsylvania. NPR political reporter and former WITF capital reporter and state impact reporter Scott Detrow spent some time recently in the northeastern part of the state. And he joins us today. Scott Detrow, thanks for joining us today.
1: Good morning, Scott. Thanks for having me. All
0: right. Trump won 77% of the vote in northeastern Pennsylvania. I mentioned 56% overall, but 77% in northeastern Pennsylvania. Why do you think he did so well? Well,
1: That 77% was uh, Luzerne County. And in Lackawanna County, where Scranton is, he got about 70%. So he certainly did really, really well in that region of the state. And that didn't surprise uh, the people I talked to, both Both Trump supporters that I met when I was hanging around around Scranton and also talked to uh, Lou Barletta, the congressman for that for that part of the state. They said that, that there's a real attraction to uh, the economic message that Trump has been talking about, the populist message, that that international trade agreements have really hurt American workers, manufacturers, that, that jobs are bleeding to other parts of the country, to other parts of the world, and that's leaving behind a lot of, of middle-class, working-class people who were gainfully employed for decades, and now it, it's more and more of a struggle every year. So that seemed to really resonate. And I think the other thing is, it's it's it, the appeal of Donald Trump to a lot of Republicans, and as we're seeing some some kinds of democratic Democratic voters, it's almost like an emotional like gut association. They the fact that he's an outsider is what you hear more than anything else. They say we're sick of people who've been in politics who've been in politics for decades. Of course, the likely Democratic nominee really does fit that bill. Hillary Clinton's been on the national political stage for like 30 years at this point. But just the fact that Trump is so different, so outside the box, well, that turns off a lot of Democrats and independents. A lot of Republicans are warming to that.
0: Well, let's talk about that a a little bit more because you say that message resonates with uh, many of the people you talk to in northeastern Pennsylvania. And by the way, have to for those who uh, didn't hear or read uh, Scott's story, we do have uh, a a link on our website, WITF.org. You went to uh, a minor league baseball game in Scranton. Great place to find a crowd of people, but uh, you found a lot- Great place to be
1: no matter what. That's
0: right. But you found a lot of people wearing, uh, Trump paraphernalia the caps the uh, the, t- the t-shirts and all that doesn't sound like you had a hard time finding Trump supporters in that crowd
1: right and, th- and that's always the thing especially when you're not at like a political rally right like there's always this trepidation of going up and talking to voters like excuse me would I would you like to talk about really personal views with this microphone that I'm yeah. sticking in your face Those, oh, no uh, you don't want to <laughs> you
0: know just kind of little insight on the street interviews are not one of our favorite things because they are so hit or miss
1: Right. And you always I think most reporters kind of take a loop a couple times around before they dive in and try to do it. But this was really striking because I started talking to one person and it was just sort of a waterfall effect. And this happened several times where where people would walk by and they'd hear us talking about the election and say, oh, are you talking about Donald Trump? I love Donald Trump. Yeah. And they'd like high five the person I was talking to or or, or one person Pulled up a picture he had taken with Trump when when uh, Trump rallied in Wilkesbury and like stuck it in my face like, look, this is me and Donald Trump. And I was like, all right, great. Just hang out. I'll talk to you in a minute. Uh, so so there was a lot of support there. But I should say the big point of the story I did was that, well, Trump is really consolidating Republican support. And, and well he could do really well in kind of the northern tier part of the state and the western part of the state, people who may still be registered Democrats, but haven't really felt that way in a while in terms of how they actually vote. It's still, I think Pennsylvania could be really tight. And it could be one of the closest races in the state. But it's still really, 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 really hard for a Republican to win Pennsylvania in a presidential year. And that's because, like you mentioned, and like we talk about all the time, Democrats still have that million voter advantage. And people in Philadelphia and Pittsburgh will show up at the polls in a presidential election, and with just those two counties alone, Republicans are suddenly down half a million votes, and they need to claw that back throughout the rest of the state.
0: Well, yeah, Pennsylvania uh, traditionally... Uh, you know, that's when Democrats do come out in the presidential years in Philadelphia and Pittsburgh. And, you know, we'll talk a little bit later about uh, the moderate Republicans around the Philadelphia region uh, in a little uh, in a little bit. But one of the things I did want to ask you about, you, you said that the people that you talk to. Uh, and they're probably much the same as they are the Trump supporters in the rest of the country. But they liked his economic message. You know, one of the criticism and just one of the criticisms of Donald Trump is that he hasn't gotten too much into specifics. He's been very good about criticizing, uh, you know, what's going on economically in the country, but uh, has been criticized for not offering a lot of solutions. Did that seem to bother the people that you talk to?
1: Not at all. And it's not just that Trump hasn't gotten into specifics; is that he changes his specifics, you know, three or four times over the course of a single interview. To take you know, this isn't an economic uh, issue, but but the most high-profile uh, example of this was right before the Wisconsin primary, when when Trump was talking about abortion with uh, with Chris Matthews from MSNBC, and he he staked out a real hard-line anti-abortion rights position, saying that that he thought that that women should be punished in a hypothetical scenario that abortions were illegal that women should be punished for 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 undergoing the procedure backs off literally issued four different statements on that uh, i think there's actually three different statements on that within the course of like 3 or 4 hours but but whether it's whether it's tax increases whether it's uh whether it's the who he's going to appoint uh, to the Supreme Court, Trump has really said one thing, backtracked, shifted. Uh, I- if you listen closely, he always gives himself just enough wiggle room to, to to not be staked down to what he said before, and he shifts. But 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 again, um, it, it wasn't as much the issues as more so the tone, the overall feeling, uh, the message that Trump is putting out there of kind of economic populism, of of kind of uh, on anti-trade deals anti-internationalist uh you know more of a scaled back american presence from the world more trade tariffs um did that overall uh, populist stance is what seems to really hit home for a lot of people
0: northeastern pennsylvania has traditionally been strong for democrats the industrial towns of uh, scranton and wilkesbury and all those uh, uh, coal mining towns uh, south of uh, of of scranton and wilkesbury Uh, You talked about this, you touched on it a little bit, about disaffected Democrats coming over to Trump. Now, Mm -hmm. they used to be called Reagan Democrats. There's a big difference between Reagan and Donald Trump. Uh, Are there a lot of uh, Democrats who are, I mean, we we know it happened in the the primary where a lot of Democrats re-registered as Republicans so they could either vote for or against Trump.
1: Yeah, I think we all need a new name for Reagan Democrats. Because I think if so, they were too. Democrats and they, they switched when Ronald Reagan was president. <laughs> and they've been Republicans for like 30 that's years right. now. I think they're just Republicans.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, national, uh, statewide, it was about 60,000 people who switched their registration. And that's something that Lou Barletta really um, kept coming back to when I talked to him. He said these people were not switching their registration to vote for Ted Cruz or John Kasich. They were switching their registration because they were excited about Donald Trump. I mean, I think um, I think polls will give us a good sense of how much crossover appeal Trump does have in in, in northern northeast Pennsylvania and the western part of the state as well, with, with people who may still consider themselves Democrats. Uh, polling is really early right now. And uh, that, that Quinnipiac University poll that had Clinton up one point over Trump caught a lot of attention. But I think that you're in kind of an unrealistic situation not unrealistic, but a situation that'll even itself out in that Donald Trump has has basically won the Republican nomination. He's consolidating Republican support to a much more impressive degree than we all expected him to. Uh, there was a poll from the New York Times uh, out this morning nationally that showed eight in 10 Republicans think that the party should should back Donald Trump, should aggressively get behind Donald Trump. And I think there was so much concern from high-profile Demo- uh, Republicans about Trump as the nominee, that it's really striking that he's consolidated so quickly. And at the same time, while Hillary Clinton is on her way to, to likely getting the nomination, she's about 90 delegates short at this point of of getting the, the delegates she needs, uh, there's still a fierce primary going on. Bernie Sanders has won several states, and there's a lot of Democratic division. So I think you could argue that right now Donald Trump has consolidated his party more than Hillary Clinton has consolidated hers, and that's why polls have been getting a little bit closer But over the next few months, it'll be really interesting to pay attention to whether Trump has independent and democratic appeal in Pennsylvania. And I know I'm personally planning and making a lot more trips up to Pennsylvania to see what voters are thinking as things play out, yeah, and also to say hi to you. And you
0: yeah, know, well, to admit it, you I really, really want to go to the minor league baseball games. That's that's what it comes down yeah, to. Yeah, maybe
1: I can collect them all. I've got to get to Reading <laughs> next, maybe. <laughs>
0: hey, Reading's a great place to go, I'll tell you. We're talking with Scott Detrow, NPR political reporter, about the Donald Trump's uh, chances in Pennsylvania in November. Talk about Hillary Clinton in just a moment, too. WITF's election coverage is supported by the Harrisburg Office of the Law firm of Saul Ewing, LLP. All right, Scott, let's talk a little bit about Hillary Clinton before we get back to Trump. Much has been made out of uh, Clinton's ties to Scranton. Her father was from Scranton. He played football at Penn State. But yet it doesn't seem like there's a, this huge amount of support for the candidate who may have hometown ties, or at least not the kind of excitement that Trump has generated.
1: Well, I don't think you can dismiss the fact that Hillary Clinton... Um, Both times she's run for president. She's had, you know, a tough time in the Democratic primary. Uh, Of course, she lost a very close race to Barack Obama in 2008. And and now she's having a tough time. The primary is going to run the full course of the primary season. Even though she's running against uh, someone who who doesn't even identify as a Democrat, he he de- identifies as a Democratic Socialist. That's Bernie Sanders. Well, I didn't want well, to make Hillary- it.
0: So- yeah, I didn't want to make it sound like uh, you know there's not support because right now, I mean, as you say, she is considered uh, the 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 favorite in Pennsylvania. Has won right. 2008 um, over Obama. Won her uh, her primary handily last month in Pennsylvania. So obviously, there's a lot of support for uh, Clinton. I, I I guess my observation is that the Clinton supporters aren't quite as vocal as the Trump supporters.
1: Well, yeah, I think that's true. Yeah, I mean, my, my point was that she's won Pennsylvania twice in a primary pretty easily, and I think that's worth pointing out. Um, yeah, if that's something we've seen, uh, you know, with, with Bernie Sanders supporters as well compared to Clinton. She's just not the candidate who's going to pack an entire stadium and have a rocking rally like Sanders does, like like Barack Obama did so well. And that Donald Trump has made kind of a hallmark of his campaign, you know, capacity crowds, whether it's at the farm show or at the, uh, or at the stadium he was at in Wilkes-Barre or anywhere else in the state. I mean, he just gets really big crowds, and it's, it's almost like a rock concert, the way, that, the way that people in the audience know his lines before they say it, the way that they, you know, it's like I, I would expect to see people tailgating at some point <laughs> this year. But, but Clinton just doesn't do that. She does smaller focus group things, and, and she's just not a, a candidate who's going to rock a stadium.
0: You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. We're talking with Scott Detrow, NPR political reporter, former WITF, uh, former WITF uh, Capitol reporter, and State Impact Pennsylvania reporter uh, about Donald Trump's chances in November. Actually, we're looking at the election overall in November, even though we're in May. We're going to hear a lot about it, I'm sure, over the, the next uh, six months or so. Uh, let's talk to about uh, Chris Nicholas. Chris Nicholas is someone you quoted in your uh, story, Scott, former aide to uh, Senator Arlen Specter, and. And in so many words, he said that he didn't think that Donald Trump had a chance here in Pennsylvania. What did he say?
1: That I believe the quote was that got a lot of attention uh, was that there aren't enough old, angry white people in Pennsylvania to, to make this work. And, and what he was, he, he was kind of sarcastically talking about was the fact that, again, that million voter advantage uh, that Democrats have. To the frustration of Pennsylvania Democrats, these voters do not tend to show up en masse in mass in gubernatorial year elections, uh, in off year elections. I think the fact that Democrats picked up so many state Supreme Court justices last year was kind of a welcome turn from that trend in their eyes. But, but there's a lot of voters in, in Philadelphia, especially in and around Philadelphia who are going to show up every four years when the presidential race is on the ballot and a lot of them are going to vote and they're going to just give a huge advantage to the Democratic candidates right out of the gate. Uh, You know, I I looked back at every election going back to 2000 and every time the Democratic candidate came out of Philadelphia with an advantage of of 300,000 to 500,000 votes. And that was always bigger. That was always way more than the overall margin, the rest of the state. Because if you're a Democrat, you win Philadelphia, you win, you do really well in, you know, Montgomery County, Bucks County, Delaware County in in the southeast corner of the state. And that can make up for the fact that you're probably going to lose 60 other counties around the state where where a lot of Republicans live. Uh, So so a Democrat just has a good advantage. And even though, you know, you and I talked a few minutes ago about how Hillary Clinton is not exactly, you know, pumping up the supporters and and really getting enthusiastic crowds. I talked to Ed Rendell as well, and he said that Democrats are really confident that just the, the polarizing figure of Donald Trump, especially the way that he's talked about so many minority groups while he's run for president— is really going to rally Democrats? He said that that fear and uh, and hate are way more powerful than love when it comes to getting people to show up and vote.
0: Yeah, we I, I think that in a, in a normal year, uh, Hillary Clinton would do very well in Philadelphia and and Pittsburgh. But uh, talk about that a little bit. You know, following up a little bit on what former Governor Rendell had to say, that there seems to be speculation. There there is speculation that there will be a lot of people. Democrats, who will turn out to vote against Trump. And that's even more their motivation than voting for Hillary.
1: Right. But, you know, those votes count the same either way. So I think as long as Democrats get these people to show up and vote, they're happy with with the outcome. Uh, So so you're going to see a lot of kind of rallying around that fact that the danger of Donald Trump as a president, the things he said about about uh, Latinos, um, about about Muslims, about things like that. And and what you're also going to see is a really big play for for independent voters and for moderate Republicans as well, especially women. Um, That's another thing Rendell has been saying a lot, that that he thinks that for every one uh, blue-collar Democrat Trump picks up in in western or northern Pennsylvania, that that Clinton can snag a couple uh, moderate Republican women in, in, in the suburbs. He said that in such a colorful way to the Washington Post this week that he had to apologize, which, you know, he's like, Donald Trump is so offensive that I'm going to make a really offensive comparison. <laughs> and, yeah, he did. That did not play over pretty well. Um, but but I'll just say on that, the first wave of ads from one of the big super PACs affiliated with the Democratic campaigns, Priorities USA, came out this week, and they're, they're an absolute focused uh, play for women. Um, it's it's, it's women. Um, it's quotes of Donald Trump, but it's, it's women kind of lip syncing them and looking more and more confer- concerned and confused as they read them. And I think you're going to see a lot more of that highlighting some of the derogatory things Trump has said about women over the course of his career and his Twitter feed when he went on the Howard Stern show, places like that.
0: Mm. Uh, you know, for Republicans to do well statewide here in Pennsylvania... They have to do well in the suburbs of of Philadelphia. Consider it, it's been considered mostly moderate Republican areas, Bucks County, Chester County, Montgomery counties, those counties. What about Trump in the traditionally moderate Republican counties around Philadelphia?
1: Well, I think that's where uh, a lot of the the Democratic focus is going to be, seeing if they can pick those, those moderates off. Um, but again, going back to this this fast consolidation that you've seen on the Republican side, uh, just I'm going to say the number again because it was so striking this morning. The New York Times poll, 80 percent of Republicans think the party needs to get in line behind Donald Trump. Maybe there won't be as much of an opportunity there as 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 the Rendell's and Clintons of the world thinks there, there could be. Uh, I spent some time in the Scranton area, but a Washington Post reporter uh, hung out in the Philadelphia suburbs for several days and the main point of that story that ran was just how surprising the support for Donald Trump in the suburbs was and how it's growing. So I think that's going to be that's going to be a place where you're going to see a lot of advertising dollars spent over the last few months fighting over those those moderate Republicans uh, or, or moderate Democrats who live in the suburbs.
0: Former Governor Tom Ridge, also former Homeland Security uh, Secretary Tom Ridge, said he won't support Trump. He said that this week. Mm-hmm. Any kind of impact? I mean, we know that uh, former Governor uh, Trump, or excuse me, former Governor Ridge. <laughs> former <laughs> Governor Tom R- Ridge. <laughs> <itself>. <laughs> yeah, really. Former Governor Ridge is very popular in Pennsylvania. Any kind of weight?
1: Yeah, I think that was, I mean, it was certainly striking and worth pointing out to have such a high profile person like Tom Ridge say, I'm just not going to vote for the Republican nominee. You know, Jeb Bush, uh, who ran for president and was just absolutely trounced by Trump, uh, made, made the same announcement. Uh, Ridge is, is someone who's very much aligned with, with the Bush wing of the party. Of course, he worked for George W. Bush as Homeland Security Secretary. I think where you've seen that kind of opposition from Republicans like Ridge start to fizzle out a little bit is the, uh, the, the absolute falling on its face of the never-Trump movement. This was a lot of high-profile Republican voices like Bill Kristol, like Eric Erickson, who ran Red State for a long time, kind of a very influential uh, conservative voice. These were the people who first tried to stop Trump from getting the nomination to get this to a contested convention. When that didn't work, they tried to find someone who could run as an independent candidate, launch a last minute third party bid. They just couldn't find anyone. They ended up asking Mark Cuban, the owner of the Dallas Mavericks, if he was interested. And it's like, well, let's let's find our own billionaire with a reality show background to combat Donald Trump. You know, so the question is, where do people like Tom Ridge go? Uh, Ridge made a point to say that he's not going to vote for Hillary Clinton either. That doesn't leave him with that many choices. Uh, the Libertarian uh, Party is having its convention in a couple of weeks. And former New Mexico Governor Gary Johnson is is probably the favorite to get that nomination. Johnson did something interesting this week. He tapped uh, former Massachusetts Governor william weld uh he was governor in the 90s that at the time he was kind of a high profile moderate republican so he tapped him as his vice presidential pick so you could see that as a push to have he is a much more mainstream moderate republican on this ticket maybe they think that if they get some funding and some momentum they could be the place that people like Tom Ridge end up going with their votes.
0: couple questions here, Scott. Uh, Pennsylvania has been called a battleground state. But since Democrats have dominated the presidential elections here in the last 24 years, I have to wonder, is it really a battleground state? But with that said, there have been several people this week in the last couple of weeks who have said that Trump would have to win Pennsylvania to win the election.
1: Absolutely. Uh, I think... I'll take that last point first. Trump's path to the White House is very clear. It's winning upper Midwest states, industrial states, you know, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, maybe Wisconsin, flipping those states um, and, and and winning a, a very close victory in the Electoral College. Uh, the, the likely Trump win scenario is, you know, something like 290 to 270 electoral votes. It'd be tough. The reason that Pennsylvania, I think, is kind of going back as as, as more of a swing state and could be one of the most important states this year, for real this time, is is mostly because of demographics. Pennsylvania, as you know, it's a much older state, it's a whiter state, and a lot of the other traditional swing states, their demographics have really dramatically shifted over the last few uh, decades. Florida has a very high Latino population at the polls. Donald Trump is not popular with Latino voters, which is probably not a surprise given the hardline stance he's taken on on immigrants in the country illegally, saying that, that we need to round up the 11 million people living here illegally and, and deport them. Uh, so a state like that is tough for Trump to win, just looking at the demographics and and it's really striking how much voting patterns really do fall in line with demographics when you start looking at it. So so Pennsylvania has the demographics that Trump thinks he can play well in. And, again, it's those, it's those people concerned about the way the economy's gone over the last few decades that, that we've been talking about.
0: NPR Scott Detrow. Scott, thank you very much, and uh, hopefully you get a chance to talk to you several times more before November.
1: Anytime. Do I have 10 seconds to make a plug? Sure. Okay, I know you're talking to Kelly McEvers about her podcast. Yes. Uh, the politics folks have, have a, the NPR Politics podcast that we've been doing where we're digging into this stuff every week, if that's of interest to anybody.
0: And how does someone uh, get to that podcast?
1: Um, uh, It's it's on iTunes. Uh, we regularly, if you follow NPR Politics on Twitter, we tweet out the link as well. And, and probably the fastest way, if you just Google NPR Politics Podcast, that'll take you to our homepage at NPR where you can see how you can download it based on what your smartphone
0: is. All right. Well, I'm ready to talk to Kelly now, too. Scott, thank (laughs) you very much. Thank you for being with us today. Thanks, Scott. All Things Considered host Kelly McEvers has a new podcast. It's called Embedded, described as taking you where the stories are happening and then going deep inside. Embedded is unlike most programs you've ever heard. Here's an example.
2: In Indiana, there's been an outbreak of HIV.
0: A virus is spreading in Indiana. Unprecedented Vermont. outbreak of
2: HIV in there. Taking HIV cases. Major
0: HIV outbreak is underway. It,
2: out. it started when people who are addicted to this pain pill called Opana began injecting the drug and sharing needles. And to figure out how this happened, I am sitting in a house where the shades are always drawn. And every few hours, people go into a back bedroom Shut the door and won't let me in. They're all doing it too. Uh, I'd say so, possibly.
0: Doors shut.
2: O- the owner of the house, Clyde, doesn't do this drug, Opana. His son, and pretty much everyone else in the house, does. They used to crush the pills and snort them. But then the company that makes the drug reformulated it. So now people inject it. And this is something I want to see. How does that work? You have to show us, you have to show us just how it works. I don't have, I don't have one. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know, but I mean, if there's a chance. um. So, I wait. Clyde eats donuts. There goes a kitty. Talks to his cat. You don't like donuts. (laughs) You got cat food. Then, finally. So, they left the door open this time. They don't close the door on me. They're going to cut the pill. One guy walks out, motions for me to come in, and I go.
3: You want to see how good?
2: Yeah, sure. He grabs a lighter. Another guy raises his sleeve and asks me if I mind. I don't mind if you don't mind. And then we shut the door.
0: I got a chance to talk with Kelly McEvers about Embedded. Kelly McEvers, welcome to Smart Talk. Thanks so much for having me. All right. A little behind-the-scenes look for our listeners. We at WITF, at least at WITF, we wrestle with titles of new programs all the time. Now, <laughs> Kelly, I don't know whether you go through that at NPR or not. I don't know how difficult it was to come up with the name Embedded, oh. but it is the perfect title for what you're doing with the program.
2: It so is, right? I, it's Yeah, it's awesome. It's perfect. It was at one point we were reporting... Um, our first episode of Embedded, where we got down and spent a bunch of time in a house with people who were addicted to an opioid called Opana, and it was a you know these these people were at the center of an HIV outbreak, um, and we wanted to report that. And I was like, wow, we're embedded, you know that's that's what we should call this. And and then the, the backstory is, uh, you know, I worked in the Middle East for a bunch of years. And the way that I and my colleagues would do our jobs a lot of the time, especially in Iraq, Uh, and Afghanistan during the really violent years in those two places, the only way you could do your job was to be embedded with the military, right? You had to attach yourself to a military unit in order to go out into the countryside in places that were just too dangerous to do by yourself. Um, And of course, the military offered you protection and and then you uh, were able to get to the places you couldn't go. And we all know it was was a pretty fraught relationship, right? Because you only got their side of the story. It was always something that people felt a little uncomfortable with. I was lucky in that I didn't get to Iraq until 2010. So I didn't have to do embeds. The country was safe enough for me to go out and do this kind of reporting on my own. So it's kind of a play on that, right? I've never really been that into military embeds. So these are embeds with human beings, with people, with the people, not that the people who work in the military aren't human beings, but with the people who are at the center of the news. It's something that I did in the Middle East when I covered Iraq and when I covered Syria. And it's something that when I came back to the U.S., I wanted to keep doing so we thought, yeah, let's take that word and sort of turn it on its head and uh, apply it to the kind of journalism we're doing um, in the show. Well, if people haven't
0: heard it yet, if uh, listeners haven't heard it yet, first of all, I encourage them to tune in. We'll talk about subscribing so to the <laughs> podcast in just a moment. But, you know, journalists are often on the scene of news events or when producing a, a story. Sure. But this is different. I mean, just the, the very first episode, when I listen to it, I'm saying this is different because yeah. you're right in the middle of this. I mean, you're an objective observer, but you're yeah. right in the middle of everything. How is yeah. it different?
2: Time, I think, is one thing. Um, When you're a reporter and you're going out and you're covering the news conferences and all the stuff that's moving really fast, you know, a Supreme Court decision or, you know, uh, Loretta Lynch speaking about the case with North Carolina. I mean, you've got to go to that press conference. You've got to get your cuts, as we call it in radio. You know, you figure out what tape you're going to use. You go back and you write your story and you're done. Like, it's a fast turnaround. One of the things with Embedded is that we... Um, we take a little more time with our stories. It's like if you were reporting a story for a magazine, right? The Sunday magazine or for for a longer magazine piece. I mean, it's it's not as long as you would spend on a documentary, but it's somewhere in between the daily news story and a documentary. That said, it's not that long, right? Like we got incredible access to people in Indiana at the center of this HIV outbreak, and we it took six days on the ground total. To get that. Um, And that's not a lot if you think about it. It's really not a lot. Yes, it is when you're talking to a news editor who needs some stuff from you, just like yesterday. But when you're talking about budgets and and, and news value um, and the amount of stuff you can get in six days, it's just not a lot of time to get a really, a lot deeper understanding than you would get if you just parachuted in for a half a day kind of did your interviews and then ran out. So I think the big thing is is time, is spending the time to do the reporting and then spending the time to, to, to really tell the story.
0: Well, you're right, for those who don't know, that uh, spending six days on a story yeah. is, is almost a luxury in our business. It sounds today.
2: insane that that's a lot of time, but that's so much time, you know, it's a lot. Exactly. You know, one of the things
0: that really struck me about the episode that you're talking about in Indiana... It sounded very dangerous. I mean, I could almost feel the danger, the tension in the room or in the house when you were describing it.
2: Hmm. I don't know if dangerous... It wasn't dangerous for us. I mean, I think we, from the moment we went into this house, we had the consent of the owner of the house. We were completely and totally upfront about who we were and what we were doing. We had our microphones out from the minute we got out of the car. You know, we were throwing our business cards all over the place. We just wanted to make sure that, that everybody was totally aware of who we were and what we were doing, and that they had control. Like, they could talk to us or not. And there were a lot of people in that house who did not want to talk to us. Not at all. And then we said, that is fine. That is your choice. You are in charge here. Um, so I don't think we were in danger. But yeah, there was a lot of tension, right? These are people who are um, addicted to a very powerful opioid. And to, get, to continue to use that drug, um, to get the kind of money that you need every single day, um, to use the amount of this drug that you need to keep you from getting sick, basically, to keep you from going into withdrawals, people had to do some some intense stuff. People had to steal from each other. People had to, um, yeah, I mean, other people, you know, that we interviewed had been brought up on prostitution charges. So, I mean, there was, it's a world where things happen in order to support um your drug use. And so I never felt like we were in danger. We we were not going to be a target of that. I did not ever sense that like people were going to try to like steal my money or something like that. It just is not. There was always a sense of 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 a uh, of respect for what we did, which was really kind of amazing if you think about it. Um, but yeah, I never felt like I was in danger. But
0: this is just one story. I mean, you also... Oh, yeah. Well, are yeah. So... I
2: have kind of a danger. Thing.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I would say. In fact, let's talk about your experiences in the Middle East. Sure. Uh, other than being embedded or not embedded, as you described earlier, yeah. how did uh, working in the Middle East prepare you for what you're doing now?
2: You know, that's a great question. I mean, I think... It's not like I started doing that kind of reporting in the Middle East. I've been thinking about this a lot lately, and it's really, if you go back to some of my earliest projects, I actually just recently remembered that, like, the very first story I did as a journalist, which was 1993, I was working at my college newspaper, The Daily Illini at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Um, my very first story, like, so my very first story ever in my entire career, um, it was, like I was given an assignment. It's like a tryout. That's how you work at the, the paper. You had to try out, because if you got a job, you actually got paid. And, and could I paid a part of my tuition working at the newspaper. Um, and so there was a story about how like there was there was a lack of affordable housing in the community. And so I went that night and spent almost an entire night in a homeless shelter in Urbana, Illinois, which, you know, wasn't super dangerous but you know like i mean that's just like from the beginning it's the kind of reporting that i do like i don't know why that is i don't know i don't have an answer i would love to someday spend a lot of time writing a book about <laughs> what that's what's going on um but so it's just like always been the kind of reporting i did i later i later was at the chicago tribune and one of the big stories that i worked on for a really long time was with female gang members in the city and and who they were and how they lived so like I don't think it's the Middle East that prepared me for this kind of reporting. I actually think it's this kind of reporting that prepared me for the Middle East. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry I (laughs) laughed. No, I mean, it's true. Like, I've been thinking about this because I've been asked about it. And, you know, I even go back further. Like, I'm the kid who jumped out of the tree and, like, got in the car that was too fast in high school. Like, it's just a thing am i wired that way i don't know i don't got an answer but uh you know yeah it's a kind of recurring theme let's say
0: i'm sure uh, mayor rahm Emanuel would love to hear kelly McGevers said that her time in chicago prepared her for the middle east
2: <laughs> oh yeah i'm sure he would
0: So what can we look forward to on the future podcast?
2: So we've got a bunch of really cool episodes coming up. Um, One is about basketball, I will say. It's about the D-League, which is the development league. Um, We're we're not going to such a dangerous place for this episode. We're going to a slightly more fun place, but a place that's fraught and where the stakes are really high. It's the farm team for the NBA, or it's the farm team system for the NBA, right? You always hear about the farm team, I think, in baseball, but I didn't know there was even a D-League for the NBA. Um, And just... Following people who, where the stakes are so high, they're making $19,000 a year in the D-League. But if they get that call up, you know, they can be making 10 times that much, 20 times that much, 50 times that much. Right. So that's really interesting. A couple of reporters spent an entire season with these guys. So that's going to be really fun. Um, we embed with Doctors Without Borders. I think that's a, a group that people are thinking a lot about these days. Again, we take a story from the news. We go deep. And we're also embedding in a school um, that's slated for closure, like hundreds of schools across the country. I mean, we're seeing this in communities, right, where there's just attendance is low, performance is bad, school gets closed. Um, so we're just went in to see what that feels like uh, over time. So that's, that's what's coming up. Um, we're really excited, and we're working super hard on them right now.
0: So how can uh, someone listening to us today
2: subscribe if they haven't heard Embedded? Wherever you get your podcasts, that's what we like to say, right? If you have an iPhone, there's a button on it that says podcasts. My mom figured it out. So like you can totally figure it out like right now. In fact, if you're listening to this right now, pick up your iPhone. Go Push the button that says podcast, search for embedded, E-M-B-E-D-D-E-D, and subscribe. Um, but, yeah, if you have, a, if you have a, other kinds of phones, there's just, like, all the different podcast apps, you know, like, uh, they're out there. They're, they're not hard to find. And you can also just, like, go online and be, like, NPR embedded podcast, and then there's, like, a button that says subscribe. Yeah, it's very uh, easy to find. Yeah, 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 yeah.
0: Kelly <laughs> <laughs> McGavers, thank you very much for joining us on Smart Talk today.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: And I would encourage you to uh, do just what uh, Kelly instructed as far as finding that podcast. If you haven't heard it yet, it is uh, different than most programs you'll hear anywhere, radio, TV, any other media. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Memorial Day is just a week away, and while many people look at it as the unofficial kickoff of summer, there are many of, of us who look at it another way, looking back at uh, uh, the reason for the holiday in the first place, to remember those who have served and those who have made the ultimate sacrifice in the United States uh, military. Now, you can get a jump start on Memorial Day this weekend at, US Army, at the U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center's Army Heritage Days, here to discuss the event the program's its special display is Colonel Peter Crane, Director of the U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center. Colonel Crane, thank you very much for joining us today.
3: Thanks, Scott. I'm a big fan of the show, so it's a pleasure to be here. Well,
0: thank you very much. I appreciate that. You know, I I think that we have to kind of talk about the event itself in case we have listeners out there who are not familiar with Army Heritage Days.
3: What is it? Well, the Army Heritage and Education Center uh, holds its major event in the spring. And this is a uh, an opportunity for people to come out and see f- over 400 reenactors in uh, historical settings uh, in a mock Vietnam fire base, in World War One trenches, in a Revolutionary War readout. Uh, we're going to have a traveling Vietnam memorial wall there that was uh, just set up yesterday. And games for kids, uh even you get to come on out and see a eighteen sixties rules baseball game, so it it's all things military, all things the u s army history
0: you know so many people who travel i eighty one and pass uh, the, the pass on a right, we look over, you, you can't help looking over, I mean, you see a Huey helicopter, you see tanks, you see the redoubt, uh, all those things. Well, this is an opportunity if you've never been there before, to go in and take advantage of uh, all the activities that Colonel Crane had mentioned. But let's talk about uh, the Vietnam Memorial Wall. This is something that, uh, it's, it's a miniature version, um, Obviously, one of the most popular uh, sites in Washington, D.C., is the the Vietnam Veterans Memorial in D.C. What is this? How would you describe this?
3: Well, the uh, Moving Wall Vietnam Veterans Memorial is a half-size replica of the memorial in Washington, D.C., and it was the brainchild of three Vietnam veterans in the early 1980s, uh, John Devitt, Gary Haver, and Nora Shears wanted to build a replica for people who would never be able to get to Washington, D.C. It's a half-size replica, and m- most people would think a half-size replica is small, but it's not. It's very large, and it really brings home the sacrifice of the 58,000 Americans who lost their lives or are still missing in v- from the Vietnam War. It
0: starts in 1959.
3: It did. It starts in 1959. It's chronologically organized, so uh, with the the very first uh, American soldiers that were killed or missing in Vietnam, 1959, and goes all the way up to the 18 soldiers that are uh, were gave the ultimate sacrifice in 1975, and includes all of those soldiers'
0: names. Uh, you know, one of the things that you see most often at uh, the original wall in in D.C. people leaving. You know, teddy bears or something that uh, reminds them of their loved one who was lost in Vietnam, um, or people you know, stenciling or p- p- tracing over the name. Do people do this with the with the miniature walls?
3: Oh, absolutely. Uh, as a matter of fact, we will have Vietnam veterans uh, on site uh, that you can speak with. And there will be uh, people there to help identify if you're looking for a particular name, uh, help you find that name, and also do etchings uh, just like uh, at the Real Mall. Mm
0: -hmm. it is the 50th anniversary. You started last November, not you personally, but uh, uh, AHAC uh, started last November, the 50th anniversary of the start of Vietnam. Uh, tell us a little bit about that and w- what this weekend will entail as far as uh, remembering Vietnam.
3: Well, in November 1965, America was involved in the Battle of the Yaa Rang. Most Americans know it as the famous Mel Gibson movie, exactly. We Were Soldiers Once and Young. Um, but that was the first major combat operations for Americans, although you know we as we just mentioned in in talking about the wall that Americans were involved since nineteen fifty eight but uh, we wanted to mark the fiftieth anniversary of the Battle of the Adrang uh, where America's commitment really ramped up and we opened up a uh, an exhibit that will be open for a couple of years uh, and focuses on the individual soldier we're very proud of it Uh, there's a companion video that people can go watch on youtube uh, and it really it has a lot of impact and a lot of emotion for many of the veterans who fought there.
0: Mm-hmm. That movie, if you have not seen that movie, I highly recommend it. Uh, one of the saddest movies there is. I can, I guarantee that uh, you will not have a dry eye at the at the end of that movie, that Mel Gibson movie. Um, but let's talk about AHAC overall because, and I'm jumping around a little bit on you here, but you said to me yesterday that... Um, uh, you know you're appreciative of the opportunity to come in on the program and talking about the events this weekend that one of the challenges that you face is the people just not knowing about this weekend and maybe even the facility itself
3: well, the Army Heritage and Education Center is a true treasure here in central Pennsylvania. Uh, it's unique for the United States Army. It's actually the Army's uh, historical archive. We have over 12 million documents related to the U.S. Army history. Um, including one-of-a-kind things like uh, the hand receipt to the atomic bomb. You can see that on display with us. We have the world's largest collection of uh, American Civil War photographs. If you've seen the famous Ken Burns Civil War series, 80% of those photographs came out of our collection that, that's open to researchers. We have over 45,000 artifacts and, that you can come see uh, and, in addition, we uh have obviously the museum. we also have a library of over half a million volumes related to uh u s military history. Some of the world's greatest military historians come here to uh to do their research now that sounds very academic and mm-hmm. and and uh dry, but we also have a mile long heritage trail that 's uh handicap accessible and recreates uh, areas, so gives you really puts you in the time period. So you can walk through a World War II barracks. You can walk through World War I trenches. You can go through a, a Revolutionary War readout and actually see that.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, I have to say that uh, I would much rather the weather be like today, tomorrow. <laughs> But uh, this goes on rain or shine. Absolutely. One of if, if you want to really get a feel for a World War I trench, it should be raining tomorrow <laughs> with a little bit of water in that trench. Don't you think?
3: Oh, absolutely. Now, <laughs> we're going to stop short of putting mud in the bottom of the trench for people. But.
0: Yeah, but the, again, that's something that uh, when you do go into those trenches, you get a real feel for. Uh, what that was like a hundred years ago in uh, in World War one
3: well, and that trench is actually uh which showcases the capability we have. It's actually an exact replica of an American World War One trench. We used the real blueprints from uh, American trenches in 1918 to build that. So you're actually seeing what it looked like back then.
0: You know, yesterday I talked to the author of a book about Benedict Arnold and George Washington. Do you have anything from the Continental Army? Do you go back that far?
3: We do. Uh, as a matter of fact, a uh, Pulitzer Prize-winning historian was just here about a month ago doing I had research him on, my show, on that. Yeah. Yeah, came down to do research on his next project. So yes, we do. We go. There will be reenactors going back to the uh, 16th century this weekend. 16th century. Yeah. So it's it's uh, it. You get really on uh, Saturday afternoon. We're going to have a uh, or Saturday morning. I'm sorry. The uh, army infantry through the ages, and you'll be able to see the development of uniforms and equipment from that time period all the way up to the current day.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, what gets the most attention when someone comes through? Uh, I mean, granted, you're, you're serving several purposes. There's the research. You, know, you mentioned the, the photography, the trail. But what gets the most attention when someone visits? Well, I
3: think that really depends on which audience is coming in. We get great support for school groups coming through. And, of course, the kids love to be running out on the trail and see the big tanks and the helicopters. Uh, for the veterans, they're usually interested in seeing something about their time in service. So, you know, for example, our v- the Vietnam uh, exhibit that we have going uh, so it really depends on on the individual veteran. What's really neat to see is families coming in, and you see grandpa or grandma talking about their time in service with the kids.
0: All right, let's talk about uh, some of the the other events at Army Heritage Days this weekend. You have a couple lectures uh, coming up this weekend, and. Uh, These names would probably be recognizable, at least one of them, uh, uh, General McCaffrey. Uh, Many people who have seen him remember him from his uh, service in Vietnam, but many other people see him today as a military analyst on NBC, I believe.
3: Yes, uh, General McCaffrey is really a, a true American hero. He has dedicated his life to the service of this country. He, when he retired in 1996, he was uh, the most decorated officer in the U.S. Army. He, he received two Distinguished Service Crosses, which is the second highest uh, medal the Ameri- uh, Americans give, uh, right behind the Medal of Honor. He also had two silver stars for valor in combat, uh, and he commanded the 24th Infantry Division, the famous left hook of Desert Storm. And as you mentioned, he's on on NBC as an analyst, but is also famous for being uh, the drug czar in in, uh, President Clinton's administration.
0: Yeah, and I like him as a military analyst because there's no spin there. (laughs) Absolutely. uh, He he pretty much uh, says what's on his mind. Terry Buckler. Tell us about Terry Buckler.
3: Terry Buckler will be speaking at 1 o'clock on Sunday. Uh, he was a participant in the famous Sante raid. The Sante raid was an attempt in 1970 to liberate a POW camp, um, and he participated in the planning and the execution of the actual mission. Uh, unfortunately, they, when they uh, did this daring mission, uh, they, the prisoners had already been moved by the North Vietnamese. Uh, but uh, it's a very famous event and uh, and absolutely uh, compelling story.
0: I mentioned uh, traveling along I-81 and seeing the choppers. Uh, one of the things you have this going on this weekend is a Huey 823 restoration.
3: Yeah, this is going to be a neat one. This is one of the helicopters that uh, participated in the Battle of the Yadrang that we were speaking of earlier, uh, Huey number 823. And uh, it was in the 170th Assault Helicopter Company in Vietnam. So this helicopter flew over 1,300 hours in combat and uh, is currently being restored here in Lidditz, Pennsylvania. The guys doing the restoration discovered all sorts of bullet holes in this thing when they started working on it. They had been patched over over the years but uh, really a helicopter with amazing combat experience.
0: Yeah, I have to admit that many times over the years, uh, when I have seen footage of Vietnam and you know, even in some of the struggles that uh, the combat that uh, the US has participated in in the last 20 years, that how those choppers, when they are being shot at and obviously being hit, uh, how they don't come down, how they stay in the air.
3: The Huey is an incredible helicopter. I've got a couple of parachute jumps out of them myself. They, uh, uh, it's an incredibly durable helicopter, and you know the shortest life expectancy I believe in Vietnam was a door gunner on a Huey helicopter. So as you said, they were a target for anyone flying into a landing zone during Vietnam.
0: Mm. Uh, and you had some kids' activity scheduled too.
3: Oh, we do. Uh, it's a lot going to be a lot of fun for kids. We've got a passport program where we'll give the kids passports. Uh, and they can go to different historical vignette areas and get stamps in their book. And once they, and of course, uh, what's great for mom and dad is that the kids are going to be learning about American history at the time. Uh, but once they fill up their book, they can come back and get a prize. Uh, we're also going to have a bunch of 18th century kids' games things like ring toss, tug of war, stilts for the kids to walk on. Uh, And, you know, it's a good opportunity for them to play something, a game that it doesn't involve electricity in a video screen.
0: (laughs) I I was thinking the same thing. It's that uh, I I don't hear anything uh, video game-wise tied into that. But, yeah, it would be nice to get outside and do those things. Those games used to involve a lot more uh, physical activity than than what they do today. Uh, Colonel Crane, I want to thank you very much for being with us today. And uh, we mentioned this is Rain or Shine. I don't think tomorrow's going to be a washout, so I, I absolutely
3: think that... come on out. Uh, Where it's all free to the public, free parking, uh, free entry. So we're we're really looking forward to everybody coming, even if it is a little wet.
0: Colonel Peter Crane is the director of the U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center in Carlisle. Colonel Crane, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you so much. Coming up on Monday's show, WITF continues our Chasing the Dream, focusing on poverty series. That's coming up on Monday. We'll be looking at how those who are living in poverty are limited by it.